morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Um, welcome to 2020. I know it's not the beginning and nor is it the first Sunday, but my first sermon in 2020, so I'm kind of excited. Uh, this happens to be our nine-year anniversary as a church. Uh, nine years ago on this Sunday, I preached my first sermon uh, for Trailhead Church, and um, some of you in this room were, uh, were in that gathering, and um, it's been an adventurous nine years, uh, to say the least. Um, yeah, a lot to say about that, um, but not this morning. What I want to do is invite you back. We will have a celebration. Uh, nine years is a significant uh, milestone in the life of the church, and, uh, and honestly, there are days it feels like 90, um, but uh, today uh, I am filled with, with, with tremendous gratitude and joy. And what God is doing in our church and, and even in the hard stuff, God is good. Um, and so I want to invite you back for our Trailhead United service in two weeks. It's going to be the last Sunday of January. On Sunday, January 26th, we're going to be meeting at 10 a.m. at uh, Edwardsville High School. Okay, We, we rented out their, um, their auditorium so that we can do a single service, single body and just get everybody into a single room, and, and we can sing praise together, we can give thanks together, we can celebrate the work of God together. Uh, it's going to be awesome. We're also going to be relaunching that Sunday our study in the book of Romans, which I am super excited about because I am aching to get back into it. Uh, we're going to have books, our study books are going to be available starting next week, um, and they'll be out. We'll also have them available at EHS uh, on January 26th. So, y'all, happy anniversary because we are the church, and uh, this is a milestone for us. So, 2020, 2020, we're spending the first three weeks of January uh, looking at our mission statement. Our mission statement is published all over the place, right? It's on our bulletins, we have it, we have it all over the place, walking in Christ as community on mission. Pretty much every church mission statement has three components, something about God, something about community, and something about mission. Those three pieces, why? Because they're the critical relationships, right? And so we're in Christ as community on mission, right? We receive the love of God and love God in return. We share that love with one another. And in love and in the generosity of that love, we, we, we reach out into the world to serve and to love. And so each of these three weeks, we're looking at a different component. Now, every designer I've talked to over the last nine years, every art person, every person, they're like, dude, drop the walking. It's just so much cleaner in Christ, as community, on mission. It looks better on shirts, right? It looks better in, in publications. It's cleaner. And I won't do it. I won't do it. Um, and I'll tell you why, because this is not a static reality. We are walking. We're in Christ as believers, but we're growing in our experience of God's love. We are a community as believers, but we are growing in what it means to experience God's blessing in our relationships with one another. We are on mission, but we are growing into, what it, into, into the fullness of the generosity of God's love so that we can love even as we are loved. We are walking, right? Because it is a progressive. We are, we are stumbling forward together in grace. That's our church. We are stumbling forward together in grace to experience more of what God has given us in Christ, walking in Christ as a community on mission. Now, we're looking at this mission statement through our yearly theme. Our yearly theme, every year, I don't know when this started, or uh, I'm sure it was Sarah and women's ministry because they're always killing it. Um, but we, we decided to run with a, a yearly theme. And this last summer, uh, we had all of our deacons, uh, at a crazy castle in the middle of central Illinois somewhere, like literally a castle. It was built to be a castle, um, and, and, and it's filled with skulls and dolly paintings. Um, it was awesome. Um, it was weird. It was creepy. And we spent three days um, sitting together and praying and talking and whiteboarding and part of what we did over the course of, of those three days is we came up with our theme for the year. We just really prayed about it, and, and we came up together. All the deacons and, and, and I came up with, with Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 as our yearly theme, specifically verse 3 where it says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
right? We live in an increasingly polarized society. It's always been polarized. Differences have always been alienating. But, but we live in a, in a society that is just growing farther and farther apart with a greater gap of mistrust in the middle. And that, of course, is reflected not just in culture, but in our church, right? Because we have people who think differently, who, 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 who have different values and, and, and different, you know. And so as a result, we need to, to fight that much harder as leaders, to, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to call people to what holds us together instead of what drives us apart, to call people to, to focus on, on, on our commonality in Christ instead of the secondary things that would push us apart. Uh, one of the guys on our, um, our leadership team creatively said, hey, we'll just call it upping the bee juice. And so that's kind of become our shorthand way of, of talking about this as a leadership team. We're like, all right, how are we upping the bee juice, right? Which basically means how are we upping the value of our bond of peace, right? How are we working in such a way that we are countering the polarizing effects of a, of a culture that, that is growing in mistrust and, and animosity so that we're calling people to the center to their trust in Christ. Last week, Aaron started uh, in this passage um, looking at God's work to create unity, God's work to bring us all together in Christ, right? Take a look at verses 4 through 6. And just to review, there is one body, that's us, the church, there's one spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells us, just as you were called in one hope, right? One hope that we all are anchored in, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all, right? We, we, we looked at, 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 at this, that, that, that there's one God who created one body and gave us one spirit and joined us all together with one faith and baptism, right? God's intent has always been for us to find unity in diversity. God didn't create a lot of different bodies. A body for y'all because you think this way and a body for y'all because you value this way and a body for y'all. There's one body. One universal body, one universal church. We'll call it the capital C church. Technically, it's called uh, the Catholic church, right? And some of you are getting a little freaked out. I don't mean the Roman Catholic church. That's different. Catholic just means universal, right? And so what we're talking about is the universal, unseen, invisible, real body of Christ to which every believer at every time is a member. We are unified in one body. It doesn't matter when you lived. It doesn't matter what language you spoke, what continent you lived on. If you believed in Jesus, you are part of this one body. That means today, every single person in this world who's a believer in Jesus, USA, China, Russia, Iran, Mexico, it doesn't matter. Every believer across the face of the earth, one body, and dwelt by one spirit. This uh, last year, we did a sermon series called Every Tribe, Every Tongue. I really enjoyed that study. It was a look at how God's gift of diversity is meant to enrich us, that God wants us to find unity in diversity, right? That, that in creation, there was embedded diversity that over time, we would only discover more and more of, and it was meant to reflect the beauty of God. But because of our sin, it actually became a point of pain for us because we tend to distrust what is not like us. We tend to fear what, what is other than us. And so we create us's and them's, and, and in between we create huge gaps of mistrust, animosity, and fear, right? It was meant to be a gift. In the final chapters of Revelation, what we see is, is this one body of believers, unified across ages and times, and once again gathered around the throne of God. And what I love is that it says every tribe and every tongue is there singing praises to God. In other words, God didn't erase the diversity. You can still see their ethnic heritage. You can still see their cultural heritage. You can still hear their different languages. God doesn't erase the diversity to find unity. They're, they are unified around the throne and they find unity in the diversity. That has always been God's intention. Unity is at the heart of God's plan for His people, which means that community has to be an essential part of our plan as God's people. 
Today, we're going to be focusing on the next part of the mission statement, as community. God created unity and then calls us to preserve that unity in community. Take a look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, let me give you context. Paul is writing from a Roman prison. Um, these are, this is one of what's called the prison epistles. It's just a fancy way of saying a letter from prison. Um, and there are four prison epistles. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, uh, uh, Colossians, um, and then a little book called Philemon. Okay? But he wrote these letters um, from prison and, and to the church in Ephesus, which was a city, and it would then be circulated among all the house churches. So there's a capital C church in Ephesus, but then there are local churches in Ephesus, right? And so the letter was written to the church in Ephesus, but it was circulated among the local churches um, in, that, in that community. So he, he's saying, look, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, I'm suffering for what I believe. I'm paying a price because it's worth it, right? That adds a lot of weightiness to what he's about to say. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is this calling stuff? Well, what he's referencing here is theologically we call this the effective call of the gospel. In other words, the gospel is good news, right? Jesus, Jesus came. He was born. He lived the life we should have lived, a sinless life. And, and then he was, he was murdered right? He died the death we deserve to die under the weight of our sin as our substitute. He took our place in judgment and paid the price we couldn't pay. He died and then he rose again in victory so that we could be no longer covered in our sin, but in his, in his victory and his righteousness, right? Um, that's the gospel. It's good news of what God did, but there is a call that comes with that news, right? The good news isn't just news to be received. It is news to be responded to. There is a call to believe in Jesus Christ. There is a call to trust this Savior, this God who, who reached out in love to solve a problem you couldn't solve, to pay a price you couldn't pay, to bridge a gap you could never bridge, to come back into the presence of God covered in the very righteousness of Christ. There is a call. And when you believe the gospel, it is an effectual call right? The gospel's effectual call produces within you a responding faith. There is a walk that is worthy of that incredible message and that incredible call. Because when you received that call, you received with it the greatest blessing the universe could ever give you. Complete and total forgiveness, a removal of all your guilt and your shame, and a complete and total blessing that you have, your greatest debt has already been paid and your greatest blessing has already been given. You are now kings and priests with Christ. You are crowned with glory and honor. And you are simply waiting for the next stage of the story, for that glory to be revealed and that power to be unleashed. It's already been given. It is not waiting for you to earn it. It is the gift of the redemptive work of Christ. There is a walk that is worthy of receiving that gift. And he is urging us to walk that walk, which is interesting because what I think that means is that it's not going to be easy, that it's not going to be natural, right? I don't have to urge you to do things that are easy, right? When my kids were little and I took them to Annie's, I didn't have to urge them to eat the custard, right? By the time I opened my mouth, it was already gone. You don't have to urge people to do what is easy. You have to urge people to do what is challenging, what is difficult, right? To do this, to walk this walk, listen to me, you're going to be walking into a headwind. Now, sometimes it's a gentle headwind, and sometimes it's a gale force wind, and sometimes your next step will feel overwhelmingly difficult. But it's non-negotiable, follower of Christ. It's non-negotiable. There, there, if you have believed the gospel, there is only one walk worthy of the gift you have received. So what is that walk? Take a look at verses 2 and 3. It is a walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
It is a walk of humility. It is a walk of gentleness. It is a walk of patience. It is a walk in which you bear with people. It is a walk in which you are eager, not reluctant, not that's theoretically a good idea. You are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is fascinating to me. There are a number of times through the New Testament where Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, and they're not all identical. There are different aspects to it, but there's one commonality to them all. Paul is highlighting what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and it's all relational. It is all relational. You can't be humble without relationships. How are you going to know you're prideful? You have no need of patience if you're not in a relationship, right? How how can you bear with someone another if there's no one there to bear with, especially if they're not getting on your last nerve, right? These are all relational. It's all about unity. It's all about love. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It is impossible to do that without walking in community. Absolutely impossible, follower of Christ. If you are not walking in Christian community, you are not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. That doesn't mean you're not called, and it doesn't mean you're not a believer. But it does mean you are not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. You have received a gift, and you are not walking in a way that is worthy of the gift you've received. You must be part of the church. Now, some of you are like, Steve, come on, man, I'm a believer in Jesus, which means I'm part of the church, because when I become a believer in Jesus, you're going to get all theological on me, I'm part of the big C universal church, right? So I can be spiritual without being in the church, because the church is just a messed up bunch of hypocrites. So I can follow Jesus without all those hypocrites, right? Listen to me, um, that's not the way it works. That's kind of like saying... um, I'm human, therefore I'm part of humanity. And I have community with other humans because I'm part of humanity, but I don't like humans. So I'm going to keep my distance from humans, but I'm still going to admit I'm part of humanity. That doesn't make sense. It's not good enough to be part of humanity. You've got to be with humans. It's not good enough to be part of the big C, universal, invisible church. You have to be embedded in a local expression of that church. You have to be in relationships, deep, abiding, ongoing relationships with other Christians. You got to be part of it, right? This letter was to the church in Ephesus, the capital C church in Ephesus. But remember, there were a lot of house churches in Ephesus. And this letter circulated from house church to house church. I mean, how ironic would it be if you had somebody that was like, Because it was a lot more intimate in a house church. You're like actually coming into somebody's home, and and these are people in deep community. They they often live together or at least house each other. They support each other, right? And you show up one Sunday, and you're like, hey, I'm part of the Capital C Church. They're like, great, come on in. And the next Sunday, you're at somebody else's house. Hey, I'm part of the Capital C Church. Great, come on in. And pretty soon, you're just making the rounds. And people are going to be like, dude, I mean, are you just showing up for the coffee? Or do you want relationship because you're coming into our family like a tourist you're coming into our family like it's a restaurant that can be evaluated critiqued and then you walk away this is a family right to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel requires you to put down roots in a local community. Because you know what? A church, a church isn't a building. A church is not a legal organization. The Greek word church, ekklesia, literally means the called out people of God. It's a community. Listen, if if the government revoked our legal standing and they took away our, our, our nonprofit status and all that sort of stuff, we would still be a church. 
If a storm came and completely destroyed our building, we would continue to be a church. Now, we'd have a harder time finding a place to gather. But the church isn't the building. The church is not the legal structure. The church is the living, abiding community of faith. We are the church. You don't go to church. Follower of Christ, you are the church. And it makes absolutely no sense to think that you can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel without becoming embedded in the relationships that make that body. Walk in a manner worthy. Everything on this list is relational. Everything in this list requires us to be in community. And everything on this list seems to assume something else, which is why I think most people walk as disembodied Christians. This list assumes conflict. Everything on this list is relational. And everything on this list is necessary when things get hard. When you move into a season of difficulty. Notice he doesn't say, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and host big parties. That's still walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? You can be in community, thriving, vibrant community and host big parties and it's a lot of fun, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and and laugh really loud with your friends. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and get a lot of inside jokes where you can kind of jab each other good-naturedly in love, indicating, man, I know you in ways nobody else knows you. None of that's on the list. You know why? That's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, but he has no need to urge us to do that. That's the easy stuff. That's the stuff that's inviting. That's the custard. We want to eat. He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with the things that are hard. Because simply doing it when it's easy is not good enough. Simply doing it when there's no conflict is not really doing it. He has to urge us to do what is hard to do. And some of you are like, Steve, it's all hard, man. I hate parties. <laughs> You're totally, your illustration totally missed me. I don't want to be at that party. I get it, right? We got some introverts. Their, their best thing is to curl up with their cat in a book by a fire. I'm ready to do that. I don't have a cat. I hate cats, but <laughs> I would do it. I'd, right now, it sounds great, right? Some of you are all like, man, I wish we had a church filled with introverts. Introverts unite alone, but in the same vicinity, right? <laughs> you just share the space. I'm with you. I'm with you. Listen, I don't have to urge you to do what you like to do. The challenge comes when we're around people that are different from us. When you're the introvert and the meet and greet time has gone more than three seconds and you've already sat down and that raging extrovert is still in your space, that's when it gets hard. It gets hard when people are difficult. It gets hard when people aren't like you. It gets hard when people push on you in ways you don't want to be pushed. It's really hard like when you meet that person and maybe you met them at community group, maybe you met them at church, I don't know, and you're, and you're having a conversation with them and you're like, I kind of like you and we have some common things and, 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 and oh yeah, that's awesome and, and we have interests and, and things are moving right along and it's getting like, this is kind of awesome and it's like, Whoa! you voted for who? Hmm. See, the the challenge arises when the differences are made manifest. Political differences, ideological differences, even theological differences. Right? There's a certain amount of theology here that's non-negotiable for us, right? That's the core of what we hold to. There is one faith of the gospel. There's one baptism, one spirit that baptizes us into the body. I'm not talking about mode of baptism, dipping versus sprinkling or... He's not talking about, he's talking about there's one spirit. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one spirit that makes you part of this invisible body, right? There's one God and Father who sent Jesus. There are, there are doctrinal truths that are non-negotiable because they're central. Then there's a whole host of other theological things that are totally secondary that we really get upset about. Things that are not central to the gospel, but we get really defensive about it. 
like secondary issues that, that arise. I know some of y'all are coming from the, the frozen chosen campground, and you get really, really nervous around the charismatic types. They just make you nervous. That's my, that's, that's my history, right? And, and the first time I was around somebody praying in tongues, I was like, is this demonic? Like literally. I had to like go to my Bible and really research and study, and I had to, I had to let my theology grow, and, and I needed to let my experience grow. Like, <laughs> like, no joke, so just revealing how difficult this was. Like, we sat like this in worship. Like, like I had to go through stages. Like, like oh. <laughs> oh. You know, and then like, oh. I could sing like this. I wonder if someone, no. And then, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm being funny, but I'm not, that's actually my journey. Like, like, you have to grow into things that are uncomfortable. And when you're around people that are not like you, man, it makes you uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable. Something happens when I'm around people that aren't like me. It is sinful. When I don't agree with you, when I suddenly dis- discover you voted for that guy or that gal, that was meant to be universal, but I was too specific. <laughs> That's why I clarified. I literally was not thinking of a specific person. Um, when I find out that you hold this opinion, when I find out you think this theological thing, and it's not the way I think, and I have a strong opinion about it, when I find out we disagree, I create relational separation. Like in that conversation where everything's going and we're moving along forward and everything's warm and fuzzy and we're becoming good friends and then suddenly you're like, what? Like I may not actually have that physical reaction, but my heart has that reaction. And I find that I pull away. And the next time I see them, I'm a little more guarded. And I, and I create this distance. And what fills that distance? mistrust, and possibly animosity, right? Because there's a human impulse that when we disagree, suddenly when I find out you're not us, you're them, I pull away, and I fill that space with, uh, with fear, mistrust. I mean, I don't do it consciously. I'm not actually, but it's, it's the sinful impulse to guard myself. It is the sinful impulse, impulse to keep myself away from uncomfortable conversations. If I keep hanging out with you, we're going to have conflict. If I keep hanging out with you, eventually I'm going to have to talk about my convictions. I'm going to have to talk about my opinions. I'm going to have to talk about my candidate. And that's going to be hard. And it's easier to pull away. Some of you, you don't pull away, right? Some of you don't run from hard community. Some of you run against it. Some of you are like, I have no problem with hard conversations, right? I'm not going to run from it. In fact, I've got every argument that shows why you're wrong and why I'm right. I'll be happy to have that conversation with you. I will defeat you because the best thing that can happen to you is that you agree with me because I'm right. Right? You're not afraid of conflict. You run into it like a bull. That's toxic conflict. Because here's the thing, y'all. The gospel assumes that the people coming together will be a diverse people centered around one faith, which is incredibly beautiful. The early church early chapters of Acts, you had radical diversity gathered around the risen Savior. In fact, it was so incredible that the culture had no way of describing it or understanding it. They looked at this group of people and they're like, we don't know who they are, what they are, but they keep using this word, Christus, 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 so we'll just call them Christians, right? They had to come up with an entirely new name to describe them because nothing else existed like it. A radically diverse community of people at a time and in a culture when diversity didn't exist, nor was it valued. It's beautiful. That church became cataclysmic. The Antioch church, man, became the explosive center of the movement of the gospel out into the world. It transformed their society. 
It's beautiful, but it's hard. And you know why it's hard? Because we hate humility. That's bottom line. Diversity is hard because we hate humility. Humility requires us to be vulnerable around people that make us feel unsafe. Humility requires us to listen to ideas that threaten ours and make us uncomfortable. Humility requires us to be more curious than defensive, more interested in seeing and knowing the person than engaging and defeating their ideas. Humility. I have to be open to being wrong. I have to show up in honesty. Conflict's not the problem. Toxic conflict is the problem. People who run from it or people who run against it, neither one of those is rooted in humility. They are both rooted in pride and fear. Since we hate humility... Disagreement becomes toxic. And that means we can't be with people that we disagree with on certain topics, right? Like you're all cool with, oh, you're a Cubs fan. That's cool. I mean, some of you, right? But there are other topics that we're like, "Mm, we can't disagree on that. I can't be with you and disagree with you on that. So what happens? We end up hanging out with people that are totally like us, right? Um, on these issues that are so critical to us, right? People that have the same convictions, the same way of looking at life. And what I want to tell you is that's not community. That's uniformity. And you're like, Steve, that's not even a word. And I know, that's why I love the English language. You can't do this with Chinese. You can't do this with Hebrew. Man, English, man, there are no rules. You can just paint. I love it. Yes, I created this word, okay? Because, because I wanted a word that would describe this tension that I was wrestling with, right? Look at the words themselves. It's self-explanatory. What's at the heart of community? Unity. What's at the heart of communiformity? It's hard to say. Uniformity. Those are two totally different things. See, community is when you have a diverse group of people unified around a shared center right? We have people from from all over the place, but man, they have one Lord, one Savior, one grace. The commonality is that they're all sinners saved by grace. They all have one Lord who loves them, who has covered them with glory, and that one thing is greater than anything else that can divide them. That's unity, and that's community. Communiformity, on the other hand, is when we come together and, and our sameness is unified around shared commonalities. I like hanging out with you because you reflect me to you and you back to me. We have the same convictions on secondary issues. We, we have the same positions on ideologies and, and, and whatever the things that are personally important to us. And so what ends up happening is, is I include people that make me comfortable. And I will exclude people who make me uncomfortable. And you're like, Steve, no, 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 I'm not like that. I don't, I don't exclude people. I'm not mean. You do it. Because you know what happens when somebody who's different from you shows up in that group and they realize that everybody in that group is not like them and everybody in that group makes fun of things that that they value, that everybody in that group has the same exact biases and prejudices and they're on the opposite side of it, they know they're not welcome. It is exclusionary even if you're not mean about it. You've created a space where they cannot safely worship the same God you worship. Communiformity has an advantage, and that's why we like it. You know what the advantage is? It reduces conflict. It doesn't eliminate it because y'all are still sinners. You're still going to be mean sometimes and say stupid things sometimes, even in communiformity, right? We're going to still do that. So it doesn't get rid of all conflict, but man, it sure reduces a lot of it because if everybody voted for the same candidate, if everybody has the same ideology, 
If everybody is positioned the same way on secondary theological issues and convictions, man, it reduces conflict. It minimizes the number of hard conversations you have to have because, I mean, what are we going to disagree about, right? It reduces the number of new questions that make you uncomfortable and make you feel unsafe because they're not asking them because they're asking the same questions you're asking and giving the same answers you're given. Communiformity is sameness unified around shared commonalities. It has advantages, but communiformity has a real disadvantage. It is not walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It is not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know why? Because it doesn't require any of the character traits that are on this list. You don't need humility if you all share the same pride. You don't need gentleness if you all share the same prejudices. You don't need patience if you all get fed up with the same people. You don't need to bear with one another when you're all totally like each other. Which means you cannot maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because you are excluding people who are filled with the Spirit. But they make you uncomfortable. Communiformity is fake community. I would go so far as to say that it is a demonic replication of the true thing. It gives you the image without the reality. It is not the kind of unity that is provided by or demanded by the gospel. True community will reflect the diversity of God's saving work in Christ. Diversity, unified, not around sameness, not about commonalities, but unified around a common center. Our one Lord, one Spirit, one Father, one faith, one baptism, one body. But let's be honest. There's a reason people prefer communiformity to community. Because community is hard. Community will challenge you in ways you don't want to be challenged. It will push on you in ways you don't want to be pushed. It'll put you in circles you don't want to be in, putting you in conversations you don't want to have, being asked questions you're not prepared to answer, dealing with struggles and doubts and difficulties you don't want to have to wrestle with. It's hard, it's uncomfortable, it's often awkward, and it's always costly. Just when, when, when everything in you, so listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, just when everything in you is telling you to pull away, this is getting too hard, this is getting too distant, this is getting too weird, this is too, just when it's getting too hard is exactly when you need to push in. Because they are not your enemy. Your pride is. When you push back into relationship, you are acknowledging the difference between us isn't the enemy. My lack of humility is. Because when I'm humble, I can see you, love you, and still disagree with you. I don't have to change my convictions. I don't have to, I don't, we don't have to have shared commonalities, these secondary issues. When I'm humble, I can disagree with you. I can disagree with you adamantly. I can think you're actually kind of stupid. But without the, the, the prideful arrogance that leads me to look down on you or despise you or, 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 or be afraid of you or my need to demonize you because you've become my enemy. Humility allows you to rediscover grace. 
Humility allows you to rediscover your common center. So it's going to be hard, y'all. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm telling you, you need community, and I'm telling you, you're going to hate it sometimes. You're not going to like it. It's going to hurt, and it's going to be hard. So why are we going to do it? (laughs) Well, for one thing, it's the walk that's worthy, right? It is the walk that is worthy of the call with which you've been called. But secondarily, it is also supernaturally rewarding. Communiformity makes us comfortable. Community makes us Christ-like. Communiformity makes us comfortable in our pride and secure in our arrogance and, and in our fears. Community actually frees us and changes us in beautiful ways. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is this tiny little book, Philemon. It's one of the prison epistles that I mentioned at the, uh, the beginning. Um, so Philemon uh, lived in Colossae. So there were, remember there was Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, the three prison epistles. Philemon led one of the house churches in Colossae. So Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Colossians, but then he wrote another letter specifically to Philemon. So it's, it's, the book is named after a person. Ephesians is named after Ephesus, a city. Philemon is named after a person, a guy who, who led a house church. He and his wife, best, our best guess, Apphia is his wife. There's another leader, uh, Archippus, um, who was either a co-laborer or a son, we don't know. But remember that, that these early churches met in people's homes. Like when you come here, this is a third space. It's not a, it's not a private space for you. When people come in here, you, you, know, you, may not, you may be a little nervous around people, but they're not invading your space. In the early church, man, people came into your house. They didn't have big halls like this. You, you had people that were wealthy enough uh, to have a, an estate large enough that they could have large meeting rooms. They could potentially even have spare bedrooms where people could stay. It was really much more of a family environment. They were inviting people into their home. They, they were opening up their lives for people to be there. Archippus, um, or excuse me, uh, um, <laughs> Philemon was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who had opened up his home, and he became one of these hubs. He was a leader in the church, and people met in his home. So why is Paul writing a letter specifically to Philemon, and not just to the Colossian church as a whole, because the Colossian church would have included him. Why this specific one? Because they were facing a unique challenge to the, un- to the unity of their little church. I don't know how little it was. We don't know what the size was. Here's the thing. They had diversity. And that diversity was in their home, in their private space, in their personal zone. And that made them vulnerable, right, to things going bad. They had, a, uh, they had somebody in their community. Now, it would have been the outskirts of the community because he, while he lived in the home and on the estate, he himself was not a follower of Christ. His name was Onesimus, and he was a slave. And I need to pause and just mention a little bit about cultural differences in slavery. Okay, American slavery is one of the most horrendous forms of human slavery that has ever existed. It is one of the most despicable and dehumanizing forms of human slavery ever. It was called chattel slavery. So in American history, when you owned a slave, you owned their humanity. You could control who they married or if they married. If they had kids, you owned their kids. Essentially, they were cattle. And you had every right over those slaves that somebody who owned cattle would have. It was one of the most dehumanizing and wicked forms of slavery that has ever existed on the face of the earth. In ancient times, while there were despicable aspects of slavery, their form of slavery was fundamentally different. Um, Often what would happen is if somebody owed a debt that they couldn't pay, they would become a slave of the person who owned the debt. So in other words, maybe they had to work seven years for this person. The slave owner owned, owned, owned that person's productivity, not their humanity. And often they would actually be giving them room and housing, like they would live with the family and they would work for the family to pay off their debt. And once that debt was paid, they were free. And, and they also retained all the human rights that anyone else would have. And in fact, there were times when when people would actually become voluntary slaves. They were called bond servants. And they would actually, there was a a weird ritual. They would take their their earlobe and and they would nail it to the doorpost of of the house. I don't know if they kept wearing, you know, like, I don't know, body jewelry or whatever, but, but that was a way 
that signify, what they were saying was, I'm giving myself as a bondservant to this home. This is my career. This is my path. This is my family. This is my community. I will serve this family. And in response, I'm part of their community, I share meals, I, so I give them all of my productivity. In response, they give me community and support, and, and, and these communities existed together. So there was a slave named Onesimus in Philemon's house. He was given access to um, everything else, everybody else in the house was given access to. We don't know what he stole, um, but somewhere along the line, he saw some valuables and decided he was just going to quietly start gathering to himself. You know what valuables you have in your house. Are they personal? Yeah. Would you miss them if they were gone? Yeah. Would you resent the person who took them? Absolutely. Have you ever had your car broken into or your house broken into and people, there's nothing, it feels so violating, right? It just feels, it's just a horrible feeling. Onesimus stole from Philemon and then ran away. And he left Colossae, and he made it all the way to Rome. We have no idea how he did that. That was a crazy journey. Um, but he made it all the way to Rome, which was the, the, the epicenter of, of the modern world. Once he got in Rome, he could have hopped on any ship and gone any place, disappeared, and had an entirely new identity. But while he was in Rome, he ran into this guy who was a prisoner by the name of Paul. And Paul shared the gospel with him. And Onesimus became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard the call to trust. He heard the call to respond. And he, he took it, man. Jesus, the risen Savior, offered him the life he was trying to get to. And he realized he would never get it outside of the work of Christ. So he trusted in Christ. And then he became a disciple of Jesus. And he sat at the feet of the prisoner Paul. And Paul taught him about how all of his sins had been washed away and spiritually he had been totally cleansed and, and he had a brand new beginning with God. But he also had responsibility. All of his sin against God had been forgiven, cleansed, and washed away, but that didn't mean he was no longer responsible for his sin against others. He had sinned against Philemon and Apphia. And Paul said, you need to go back. You need to atone for your sin. You violated their trust. You need to go back and renew that trust. So he did. And he bore this letter with him. This crazy little letter called Philemon. Now can you imagine for a moment how complicated this becomes? He was a slave and a thief. He had violated the family's trust. But he's now a brother. They gathered in their intimate spaces of their home to worship God, to break bread together, to sing praises to their Savior. And Onesimus was coming to join them in that place of intimacy. They had been hurt. Their trust had been violated. Can you, you getting a little, does this sound a little sticky to you? Possibly a little hard, right? Maybe. That Philemon has to respond to him, not as a slave owner, not as a businessman, not as, a, not as somebody who's, but as a brother. Yeah, it's difficult. So Paul offered this prayer. All that story to bring us right here. Um, Paul offered this prayer in verse 6, and it's one of the most profound prayers I have found in the New Testament about community. I cannot talk about community without thinking about this prayer. He said, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That phrase, sharing your faith, we as Western evangelicals, when we hear that, we almost always think of evangelism because that's become jargon for us. Sharing your faith means talking to unbelievers about Jesus. That's totally not what this means. The Greek word behind it is koinonia, which is the Greek word from which we get fellowship and we get community. At the heart of it is the idea of sharing, sharing life, sharing yourself, knowing and being known. Loving and being loved, being vulnerable and honoring the vulnerability of others. Paul says, I pray that the koinonia of your faith, the community of your faith, the sharing of life that comes from having a common center, a common faith may become effective. In other words, it's going to do something for you. What's it going to do? 
It's going to be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This diversity, thief and person stolen from, slave, slave owner, wealthy, poverty. This diversity, this relational challenge, Paul's like, it's going to be hard, y'all. I know what I'm sending him back into, and I know what I'm asking of you finally, but it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward, right? People in the community are going to be scratching their heads. What in the world? How did this happen, right? There are things that happen to people, to slaves who steal and run away. And now Philemon's like inviting him back into his home and and treating him like a a brother. He's going to lose face in the community. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. But Paul's like, it is good. Because God's going to use it to change you. God is going to use it. Like, do you get that? Like, like. Paul is like, I'm so excited for you guys. Like, this is going to be awkward and hard and, and, and weird, and I am so excited for you because you know what it's going to do? It's going to open up doors in your heart to experience the blessings that are already there that you can't get to. It is going to increase your experience of all the good things God has put in you through the work of Christ and for the sake of Christ. It is going to blow open your experience of grace. I am so excited for you. That's so weird. There are blessings in the Christian life that you will never discover unless you work through conflict in Christian community. You get that? There are blessings. You're like, man, I wish I could be free. Man, I wish I could be more joyful. I wish I could be more content. I wish I could have this. I wish I could have that. Stick around. Stop running. Don't run away from the conflict. Don't power up in the conflict. Discover humility in the conflict. And you will discover things about the beauty of the gospel that you can discover in no other way. You cannot walk in a manner worthy of your calling without community. You cannot experience all the blessings that are given to you in Christ without working through the hard stuff with people that are different from you but hold to the same Savior as you. And you are going to discover so much more of the good things that God has given to you and won for you and covered you. Community will be hard. But it's worth it. And it's essential if you're going to have any maturity in Christ. So I have people all the time come to me. So you guys know we are a church. We gather every Sunday, and then we scatter to our community groups during the week. Um, and the gathering is really, really important. We preach the word. We, we, we study. We sing. We worship. But this is really not a great place for community because it's easy to show up and just disappear. You can't know me, and I can't know most of you, right? We don't have the relational capacity. And, and people that just shake your hand on Sunday morning are friendly. They're not, they don't know you and aren't known by you. They don't love you and are known. Like, I'm not saying there's not affection, but I'm saying that's not community. So what we do is we have community groups, smaller groups where people can know and be known, love and be loved, be vulnerable and honor the vulnerability of others, right? And, um, and I have people coming to me all the time, you know, they got in a community group and in the beginning it started out really well and then they stopped going as much and... And, and then eventually, you know, the ones that are honest and will have conversations will come to you and say, you know, Steve, my community group's just really not doing it for me. What do you think? Is there maybe a better group for me? Could I, could I land somewhere else? And I'm, and I'm usually like, why? And sometimes there are good reasons. I'm not saying there are never good reasons. But a lot of times what it comes down to is, you know, I just, I don't have anything in common with them. I don't know. We're just different. 
It's not easy. Hmm. Well, before I let you go, let me ask you a question. Can you name everybody in your community group? Hmm. Can you tell me how you are praying specifically for every person in your community group? Can, can you tell me what practical steps you are taking to try to encourage them to grow in their experience of grace? Usually it's like, well, no. <laughs> Why? you know, that's, I don't, that's hard. I don't, that's the leader's job. I don't, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm here to get my tank filled in the middle of the week. You know, I just want to, want something easy. I just want something to encourage me. I'm so exhausted at the end of the day. I work so hard. I don't want to have to work. They don't say those things, but you know, that's true, right? Usually it comes out a little differently, but here's the thing. I think a lot of us honestly are not looking for community. We're looking for communiformity. We're looking for something that's easy. We're looking for something that's going to tell us we're okay exactly as we are. We're looking for something that's going to reflect back to us, us. Listen, if, if you're getting bored with community, or you feel like you don't have enough in common with the people in your community, the solution isn't to bail. The solution isn't to hit the eject button. The solution isn't to power up and try to change everybody so they think like you. The solution is to push into humility. The solution is to push into the core of what gives us unity. The solution is to push back into the bond of peace. And stop asking people to meet you in your shared commonalities. Instead, meet them in shared love. Stop asking them to, to, to like the things you like and make you comfortable, and, and, and instead learn to love them. Reach out to them. Go deep in God's love for you, and then reach out to them with the love God has given you. You know what will happen when you do that? It's really, really hard to feel relationally distant from people you're studying in order to love them. It's really, really hard to feel relationally distant from people that you're actively praying for. It's really, really hard to feel relationally distant from people that you are practically looking for ways to encourage their faith and encourage their hearts. See, what will end up happening is you'll actually come to like them. You'll actually come to love them. You'll come to see them and value them, not because of what they do for you, not because of how they make you feel about you, but because you realize that by giving them grace, you increase the experience of grace in your own heart. That by actually moving into community to love, you are actually changed by that community so that you are equipped to give more love and experience more love. You actually taste more of the riches that are in you for the sake of Christ. It'll be hard. You're going to have to have hard conversations. You're going to have to move through those gaps of distrust. You're, you're going to have to, to listen to people that you have a hard time listening to. You're going to have to be around people whose personality grates on you like a cheese grater. You're, you're going to have to create space for people who, who voted for that person and are vocal about it. You're going to have to love. But believer... In the gospel, you have been given an indescribable gift of love at an incredible cost, a cost you simply cannot understand. I urge you, therefore, brethren, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Let me close this in more prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, I thank you that uh, you love us exactly as we are.
and you love us too much to leave us as we are. And that community, the hardness of community, the hardness of our conversations, the difficulty of wrestling through these things is actually essential to our growth in grace. It is part of your plan that we would have diversity and that diversity would get under our skin and irritate us and make us uncomfortable and ignite our fear and puff up our pride so that as those things happen, we might repent and once again discover the beauty of grace. And a discovering the beauty of grace might be restored to the sanity of humility. And having been restored to the sanity of humility, we might rediscover what it is to be gentle and patient. Bearing with one another, not against, not running from, but bearing with one another, eager eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, let that be true of us. Let that be true of our experience. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.